I'm Amy Halpern-Lass. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa Deckman, CEO of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization dedicated to conducting independent research at the intersection of religion, culture, and public policy. Dr. Deckman studies the impacts of gender, religion, and age on public opinion and political behavior, and is the author of several books, including School Board Battles, The Christian Right in Local Politics. We will be talking with her about the historical and political context of the current parental rights campaigns. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here today. Could you summarize the key demands of the parental rights activists? Well, today or historically, would you say? (laughs) Well, we're going to ask you about both. So pick where you'd like to start. Sure, sure thing. I think historically, parental rights has always been a term that has held resonance for people on the political right. Because there's a sense that parents should have a large say and large control in the curriculum and the activities that are happening in public schools. Now, I don't want to say that this also isn't a belief held by parents who are not part of the right. I think that most Americans who are parents and who have children in their schools would say, yes, they want to be part of their, their kids' schools, and they would like to be part of that. But I think the parental rights issue, as defined by the political right historically and in today's times, is more about the idea that the curriculum of public schools is often too liberal or progressive on the political left, that it has the ability potentially to indoctrinate students into beliefs and attitudes that they themselves don't hold. And so I think it holds a lot of appeal for parents who might otherwise not necessarily be politically active. You know, part of my work also looks at the role of conservative women involved in politics historically. And so politics for much of our history was really a gendered affair in the sense that men were far more active. And obviously women couldn't vote right until uh, the beginning of the last century. But the one area historically where it was viewed as permissible for women to get involved was really when it came to the education upbringing of their kids. And so I think parental rights is a way for, especially historically, conservative women to get involved in education politics as well. But I think it has a particular meaning for conservatives that it doesn't have for for liberals. And are there specific things that they're asking for around the country? I mean, obviously, we know some of them in terms of, well, you, you know, what are some of the things that PRI has looked at in terms of what some of the demands are and also perhaps you know, how these fit with how parents in general or the population in general think about these same issues? Well, I think if we look at what's happening right now in terms of parental rights and public education, it's hard not to turn on the news and see all these news stories of angry parents showing up at school board meetings, really unhappy over the direction of the curriculum of some of the schools. So for example, I think there's a mentality among people on the right that our public schools have become too woke. And what they mean by that, these conservative activists, is that there's too much emphasis on LGBTQ issues, on gender identity and sexual education in public schools, or there's a concern that there's too much conversation about uh, critical race theory, which actually doesn't really exist in, in public school districts around the country. But nonetheless, I think this is idea that any sort of conversation about 
the role of our history and the role of racism and structural racism in our history is very divisive and it makes white students feel guilty and, and those sorts of things. And so I think there is a sense that this wokeness is kind of also brought into this idea of parental rights more, more generally, because I think many conservative activists want to have a larger hand and what's being offered in the classroom. I would also say this, and I think why, for example, it's resonating so much currently in our current politics. So if we look at where we've been the last couple of years as a nation, we've really just emerged, I think, in wake of this horrific pandemic. And many of us were, of course, in our homes for a better part of a year. And our kids were, if you have kids in public school, we're often at home learning remotely. And I think a lot of parents were frustrated with the lack of progress in getting kids back to school or alternatively requirements that they wear masks or get vaccinated. So a lot of parents, I think, have been unhappy about the state of public schools. And so if you look at something like the Virginia gubernatorial election that took place in 2021, as we're emerging out of the pandemic in some ways, part of Glenn Youngkin's appeal or his message really boiled down to parental rights in schools, really targeting a message to frustrated parents. And he won that election. He also had sort of a weak opponent, I would argue, and it was close. But nonetheless, I think the narrative for many people on the political right is that this is a winning issue, that parents want more say in the direction of their schools. Many conservative parents think they're going too far to the political left and they're unhappy about that. And so this is viewed as sort of a winning issue. And so that of course led people like Governor Ron DeSantis, for example, in Florida to pass a bill that some people call the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is essentially trying to forbid instruction of gender identity or sexual orientation in public schools. And so he of course was resoundingly reelected in his last election campaign last fall. And I think that many conservatives looked at that as, again, this is something that has wider support among American, uh, among the American public. When in actuality, I think what's interesting, PRI has done some polling recently. So last year, we asked Americans whether they would favor or oppose banning books that discuss LGBT topics, you know, just to kind of get back to the issue of don't say gay. And we found in March of last year, 2022, only about 32% of Americans either favored or strongly favored banning those sorts of books. And so those kinds of initiatives to ban books is really not necessarily widely supported among the American public. And on issues concerning racism in schools or looking at content for schools, the vast majority of Americans say that we should teach both the good and the bad when it comes to our history. And in fact, we asked specifically in that same survey from, from last year, of March 2022, 59% of, of Americans strongly oppose banning books that depict slavery, for example, additional 30% oppose it. So really, I mean, less than one in 10 Americans say we shouldn't even bring up concepts like slavery. So I think most Americans really realize that history, for example, is, is balanced. We need to be talking about these sorts of topics. But nonetheless, it's left, I think, a lot of activists in terms of the name of parental rights are trying to remove those conversations in schools today. Yeah. When there were parental rights campaigns in the past, were they as polarized as they seem to be today, even though your polling shows that in general, the population or even parents are not as polarized, but those who the activists clearly are? Yeah, so to say that um, religion and politics and schools is a new thing is absolutely not true. I mean, if you go back in our history, 
There were, of course, the famous Bible wars that took place in the mid, early to mid uh, 19th century. And this was over the role of which Bible that children should be reading in public schools. And it was really a reaction to um, the growth of the number of Catholic immigrants that came to this country, Irish and Italian immigrants. But those parents did not want their children reading the King James Bible or some of those parents. And so it really led to these protracted battles and, in fact, some riots and deadly riots in, in places like Philadelphia. So I think when there are kind of pitch battles over religious content in schools and when you have, for example, the religious rights of minorities being, de being depicted against the religious rights of the majority, you end up with a lot of political drama. I think, for example, also cutting to the 20th century, if you look at the famous court decisions in the 20th century that essentially removed the teaching of Bibles instruction or daily Bible instruction, also removed school prayer, those cases were brought about by parents who were either Jewish or who were non-religious. You know, and so whenever you have that sort of the rights of religious minorities coming into a play with the rights of, say, the majority, you have those kinds of political skirmishes. But I don't think that in the 20th century, it was necessarily as partisan and as polarized as it is today. I think that is maybe something that that's different. I would also add, too, where you've had these sort of political skirmishes in public schools is when there's been the introduction of ideas that challenge the beliefs and the theology of the religious majority. That, of course, we saw with evolution in the 1920s. Anti-communism had some religious themes as well in the 1950s. And, of course, you had the, the introduction of sex education in the 1960s and 70s and multiculturalism in general in the 1970s and 80s. Anytime you have a curriculum, again, that challenges the narrative and touches on themes that go against the religious views of, of parents in some way, you, you're going to have conflict. But again, I think to your point, Amy, I don't necessarily think it was as partisan as it is now, but we've just simply become a far more partisan country that is polarized by our party politics today. Do you see, does your data show at all any indication of whether these campaigns around parental rights are related to efforts to weaken funding for public schools or in some way to discredit public schools? Yeah, so we don't really have any questions on our surveys. You know, what we tend to do here at PRI is we ask the American public how they feel about these topics uh, to kind of get a just uh, to get a good lay of the land of, of how religion is affecting these viewpoints. And so we don't have necessarily a lot of questions on that particular topic. I will say, however, though, that part of the political right, and these are not just religious, I think, aspects of the of the religious right, but but I think part of the more libertarian aspects of the of the political right as well, have long sought the goal of having more funding for charter schools, the creation of more charter schools, or the funding of, of the public for vouchers. And so vouchers that can be used for private schools. And I think just this week, in fact, in North Dakota, the state legislature is poised to essentially allow parents who send their kids to religious school use public funds for, for those sorts of things. And so I think there's a larger long-term effort of many activists on the right to, in fact, have vouchers be spent for private schools, including religious schools. And so I'm not surprised that this campaign is happening at the same time as you have some activists, I think, trying to highlight what they view as problems with the public schools. I think there is something that's related there, definitely. What do your studies show about parents' opinions 
on these campaigns. I mean, even if they at least outwardly don't agree with them, are they glad that they're happening? I think it depends on the party and the religious identity of the parent, right? And so we tend to find in terms of support over banning books, which really aren't largely popular, but I'll give you another example. Actually, let me start over and start with another example. I think that the popularity of these attempts, and you see groups like Moms for Liberty who are organizing conservative parents at the grassroots level to go into the schools to learn more about the curriculum and to advocate against more progressive curriculum. I think the popularity of these things depends on the partisanship and the religious makeup of the parents themselves. So again, to give you one sort of more recent example, if you look at the extent to which Americans think that public school teachers and librarians are providing appropriate curriculum or trying to indoctrinate students that wrongly portray America as a racist country, this was a question that we asked last fall as part of our American Value Survey. Fully two-thirds, 66% of Americans believe that public school teachers and librarians actually are providing appropriate books and curriculum, whereas only 29% believe that they're indoctrinating students. However, if you break that down by partisanship, you know, a majority of Republicans, uh, 54%, compared to only 70% of Democrats, actually believe that teachers and librarians are indoctrinating children. And so I think the popularity of the, the policies really depend on the partisanship and the religious makeup. And I should also add, for example, on that particular data point, more than half of white evangelical Protestants also agree that there's indoctrination going on. And one of the things that we look at here at PRI often is media consumption. And so if you're watching Fox News a lot, if that's your main trusted news source, Fox News tends to focus a lot of their content on what they consider the wokeness of public schools. And so that becomes a bigger priority for those parents. But again, it's not necessarily the priority of most parents in the country. Right. Well, Fox News isn't necessarily the cause of it. I mean, clearly Christian conservatives are going to tend to watch Fox News. Still, a third of parents seems like a substantial number that object to what's being taught in the schools. Can you explain that? Well, I think that part of it is that, you know, it's not just watching Fox News, you're right about that. But if you are a person who is, I think, religiously conservative and you follow different interest groups, I mean, I can't really emphasize the extent to which social media is important and part of this conversation. And this is also something that I think sets apart earlier iterations of conservative Christian activism in schools. For example, I wrote a book about the involvement of the Christian right in school board elections in the 1990s, and we really didn't have social media at that point in time. And I think what social media allows activists to do is to really take take an issue and maybe misrepresent it, or to take one example that might be perceived as egregious and sort of to essentially imply that this is happening in every school district in the country, when in fact, it's probably not likely, or even providing and spreading misinformation, getting back to this idea of critical race theory, for example, critical race theory is a graduate level sort of theory that educators often use to kind of consider systemic racism in different aspects of society. Uh, There's no evidence that critical race theory is being taught in public schools writ large, right? But yet, if you watch you know, the videos put out by people like Moms for Liberty or, or other organizations that are part of the, the political right, um, I think there is sort of this emphasis that this is happening and it's prevailing in all school districts around the country. Yeah. You mentioned the social media aspect. Is that something that is being used 
by people who are opposed to these campaigns, as well as by groups like Moms for Liberty? You know, I think that's a good point in that social media can work both ways of the political aisle, right? I think that a lot of activists on the political left also use social media to galvanize. And that there's been examples of parent groups who are banding together to try to stop book bans from happening in their communities and to advocate for, for librarians and for teachers. And so I think it's it's also a tool that's being used by the political left as well. You noted earlier in your introduction that I study the impact of generations. And I will tell you that Generation Z exclusively gets their news information from, from social media sources. And it's really been used by, by those individuals also to protest to raise their voices about their unhappiness with the direction of curriculum that's happening from, from their perspective. I think, you know, of course, Gen Zers and teenagers can't vote yet. And sometimes it's it's falling on deaf ears in, in some, certain school districts around the country. But nonetheless, I do think it's an important tool for activism as, as well on the political left. How does race or even racism factor into the parental rights campaigns? Yeah. So I'm going to go back into a little bit of the history of the rise of the Christian right um, in American politics. Really, most people think that the Christian right came about in the late 1970s, in part as a reaction against Jimmy Carter's presidency. So Jimmy Carter was notable because he was really our first self-affirming born-again Christian. He was an evangelical and, of, of course, is by all accounts quite devout in his beliefs. But a lot of conservative Christians were disappointed in Jimmy Carter's presidency because they didn't realize how, I think, politically liberal he was. And so part of his campaign when he was running in 1976, he promised, for example, to teachers unions who were a big constituency of his um, election campaign, that there should be a national, for example, Department of Education. But there was also another reason that the Christian right came into existence. It wasn't necessarily because of opposition to abortion. That's part of the story. That's often what people historically think of when they think about the Christian right and Jerry Falwell and the moral majority and those groups. But really, a lot of conservative Christian activists began to mobilize because there was talk among the IRS under Carter's administration that they were going to remove the tax exempt status of Christian fundamentalist academy. Christian fundamentalist academies primarily located in the South. Those academies began to appear in response to, of course, the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954. It took many years to fully integrate public schools and desegregate public schools. But yet for some conservative white parents, they decided in fact to create their own sorts of Christian academies that had a history of not allowing students of color admission. And so that clearly was a violation of of the 14th Amendment. And so the Carter administration was looking into, in fact, revoking that status. And that's really what galvanized initially a lot of people in the, the, uh, the Christian right. And so I think that, you know, there's always been this history of race, religion, when it comes to our public schools. So we jumped to Reagan being elected in 1980. The immediate threat of IRS revoke, revoking tax status for those schools gets removed. And a lot of people felt that Essentially, with Ronald Reagan in the presidency, he was recognizing the role of evangelicals and supporting them and that sort of thing. But after about eight years, Reagan's priorities were really about tax cuts, building a bigger defense, and not and paying a lot of lip service, I think, to evangelicals. And so in 1988, you have the Republican primary. I promise this is linked to schools, I do. <laughs> so the Republican primary involves, of course, George Herbert Walker Bush, vice president, and it involves 
televangelist Pat Robertson, who was one of the very disgruntled people with Reagan's presidency. And he felt that the Republican Party relied on the votes of conservative Christians, but didn't implement those policies. And so he challenged Bush in that primary. He, of course, lost. But what he did in the late 80s then during this campaign is he basically set in motion the creation of what became the Christian Coalition. And what Pat Robertson wanted to do as head of the Christian Coalition, he hired this kind of one young wonderkin, Ralph Reed, who's still involved, right, with the Christian right today, to really try to refocus the efforts of the Christian right in the grassroots. And so when it comes to the grassroots, getting more conservative Christians involved in GOP precinct politics, but also at school boards, because in the 1990s, again, we're still dealing with issues like sex education in public schools and the standards of history curriculum in public schools. And again, the fear of liberal indoctrination of, of students in public schools. So those issues have been around for, for a long time. Those arguments have been around for a long time. And so that's essentially, I think, um, really looking at the role of race. So race was a part of that initial process. But I think going back to today, how it kind of plays a role. So I don't think you'll necessarily find a lot of conservative parent activists talking about religion and race per se when they push back against CRT. But I do think that the problem for conservative activists when it comes to something like critical race theory is that it really pushes against this more inclusive history of the United States, right? In the sense that those parents wanna downplay the role of race and they want to sort of safeguard ideas about what it means to be America, what it means to be exceptional. And so I think in that respect, race sort of plays a role in that. We've done a lot of extensive research, for example, at PRI, looking at structural racism attitudes. We kind of come up with, we've come up with something called the Structural Racism Index. And we find that, for example, conservative Christians are far more likely to be opposed to those indices of structural racism, right? The idea that, you know, if if only African-Americans worked harder, they'd get, you know, ahead in life or that there's no widespread discrimination against African-Americans. And even the idea that there's, in fact, more discrimination against white Americans and black Americans in this country. Um, religious, conservative religious white Americans believe that more than other groups do. But in terms of our schools, you know, I, I don't necessarily see an effort to try to impose a Christian nationalist sort of theology, maybe in some very conservative school districts. But but I do think that the race, racial ideology is part of that mix as well when it comes to religion. Hmm. Are these conservatives, conservative white parents, OK with their kids going to school with black children and have a children of other religions? So one of the things that I found in my original book on school board battles is that I looked at the extent to which conservative Christians were running in elections. And I found that, in fact, you know, they weren't disproportionately winning elections. They tended to be elected in conservative districts, that sort of thing. But what I found is that among those that were ultimately elected to the school board, those who I think were most theologically driven and really would have liked to restore prayer in public schools, for example, Constitutionally speaking, there were limits to what they could do. And so by the end of, I think, the 1990s, going into the early 2000s, a lot of the most conservative parents theologically had sort of homeschooled, moved to homeschooling or kind of moved their kids to private religious schools. And so I think that there's not necessarily a problem with their students attending schools that have, you know, students of different races or religious beliefs per se. 
Although I do think that many conservative Christians would say that they'd rather be in a country, we found this in our data, that's primarily made up of fellow Christians. I think what troubles many conservative Christian parents is schools that teach acceptance of LGBTQ rights, for example, that that's very much a, a, not a part of what their theological beliefs really entail. So I, I don't think it's it's per se that they're going to students with look, who look different from a racial or ethnic perspective as much as it is about, it's more that their kids are being exposed to the curriculum that they're not happy about. Like reality. <laughs> well, I think people who oppose that would say, yeah, this is kind of the reality in which we live. I mean, and I think it's also interesting that if we look at Generation Z, which is the current generation, those those Americans born after 1996 that are currently populating middle and high schools, they're the most ethnically and religiously diverse, right? And so I think that those sorts of demographic changes and the fact that younger Americans are less religious, you know, is really troubling to many conservative Christian parents. And so that's why I think you see these debates happening that are so hot-tempered in public schools, because the reality is that we have a multiracial and diverse country, and that I think can be in some ways be interpreted as challenging to the worldview that many conservative Christians have and their parents have. I wanted to follow up on the question about school board candidates. I mean, I, it sounds as though the Republicans or you know the people who are pushing for parental rights would probably say that Youngkin's victory in Virginia and DeSantis's apparently fairly large victory in Florida indicate that this is you know a winning issue and it's something that parents support regardless of whatever the other data show. But how did the candidates um, who were pushing this seem to do, for example, in, in 2022? I mean, is there a clear pattern of this being a winning issue or not? I guess what I would point to in terms of these curricular initiatives happening across the country. You know, there's a lot of parents who really just don't support the idea of not talking about homosexuality or, or gender identity in schools, right? Because the reality is, again, is that one in four Gen Zers identify as part of the LGBT community. And a lot of parents have kids who have mental health struggles, especially who are part of that community. And so parental rights, from their point of view, would probably and should involve more honest conversations and acceptance and inclusive inclusivity uh, when it comes to, to their kids, right? So I don't necessarily think that the policies endorsed by Ron DeSantis, even though, of course, he was reelected very handily in, in that election last year, but is that something that can transport to other states, especially blue states? Probably not at all, right? And I think uh, from a national pl platform, you know, I don't think that that's going to be successful. Will it be successful in some school districts? I think so, yes, because there are some places that are more conservative. But I don't necessarily see it as a winning issue across the country. Our polling data really doesn't show that either. Is there anything we didn't ask you but should have? Gosh. Um, no, I mean, I do think that these issues aren't going away anytime soon, frankly, because we have a younger generation that's more diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation and gender identity that are less religious. And so I think you're going to see more parents on both sides of the aisle getting involved in, in politics. I think at the end of the day, you know, having a system where people can actually run for election, amass their supporters, 
you know, I think that's really what democracy is, is is all about. So we'll have to see how these things actually shape up in the long term. But it's something to keep an eye on as we move into the future, definitely. Is there anything you'd like to mention about PRRI's work or how people can access your work? I would love to. So if you go to our website, PRRI.org, you can actually, at the bottom of the the website, sign up for newsletters. So we have, for example, three times a week, we produce a newsletter called The Morning Buzz, where we look at trends in culture and politics, and we sort of put our own spin on what our data are saying about those trends. We don't just look at public education. I mean, we tend to look at things like Americans' attitudes about LGBTQ rights or about democracy, the, the state of democracy, or and occasionally we have things like favorability numbers for candidates who are running for, for political office. So it's a sort of a nice mix of different issues that talk about politics, but also about religious change in the country. So please sign up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PRI poll. And so we, again, try to, we try to think about all of the political and cultural events that are occurring right here in the United States. And what does our data speak to in terms of those events? And so that's really what we're trying to do. Again, we're nonpartisan. We're not profit. We don't you know, take sides on these issues, but it's more about trying to bring truth to discourse, to kind of take a look at what's happening when it comes to Americans' opinion on, on these issues as well. And if you're a researcher, our data are publicly available. And so if you want to look at and play around with the data that we produce, we have a data vault. And so researchers can actually download the data themselves and take a look at it, take a look at it. So I'd always encourage if you have especially educators in your audience, people who are in grad school, education professors, there is good high quality data for them to analyze themselves. And so take a look under our data vault at PRI.org. Thank you, Dr. Melissa Deckman of PRRI. And thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do? A collaboration with Dr. Mira Levinson of the Harvard Grad School of Education and Ethics. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click video. In the first case study, a teacher using action civics faces pushback from a parent. The goal of the series is not to provide right answers, but to illustrate a variety of ethical viewpoints. If you found this podcast worthwhile, please share it with a friend or colleague. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week. Mm-hmm.